This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. I think organ donation and organ transplantation are um, two of the areas where we have done some of our best ethical thinking, both about uh, justice um, and also about informed consent. Due to the positive response of our audience, we decided to highlight and offer another episode of one of our lead contributors in the Ethics Lab Essentials series. Today, our lead contributor is Beckett Grimmels, System Director of Ethics at Christus Health in Irvine, Texas. Beckett, great to have you with us. Your episode is focused on organ donation and organ transplantation, and you are in conversation with three national experts with different backgrounds, ethicists, transplant surgeon, and an intensivist who cares for potential donors. What stood out to you during or after this conversation? Thanks, Kevin. I'm excited about this episode because I got to work with folks that are good friends and good colleagues on a topic that falls right within their expertise, a topic that is very complicated both clinically and ethically, raises a whole bunch of ethical issues Uh, especially for ethics committee members to face in their work. In this episode, we cover a number of ethical issues related to organ donation, including the informed consent process, uh, unique issues that arise in transplantation after brain death and those that arise after donation after cardiac death, as well as kind of this general idea of conflicts of interest between the one team caring for the patient who might be the potential donor and the team caring for the potential recipient. I'd like to introduce our three guests today. Dr. Carol Bailey, recently retired after 23 years as the Vice President for Ethics and Justice Education at Dignity Health, a health system based in San Francisco. She received her PhD in philosophy from Georgetown University, which was one of two bioethics programs at the time she studied there. Dr. Angie Wall is an abdominal transplant surgeon at Baylor Medical Center in Dallas, and she has a PhD in bioethics from St. Louis University. Dr. Wes Ely is an intensivist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and at the Nashville VA Hospital. He works in the intensive care units where he cares for critically ill patients. All of you have an incredible amount of experience with organ donation. What's one story that sticks with each of you and maybe causes you to pause or ask deeper questions? Yeah, I'll tell you uh, a story of of a young boy who came to us years ago with cystic fibrosis and wanted to get transplanted uh, with cystic fibrosis. Of course, though, multiple organs are, are damaged. Uh, in this case, the patient had lung failure and liver failure and, and obviously pancreatic damage too. Um, to transplant this patient required triple organ transplantation. Um, and really it's, quadruple because it was a liver, two lungs, and a heart. So we call it triple organ, but it's four, it's four actual organs, two lungs, a heart, and a liver. And that's a lot of, of ethical conversation because are you going to save one person with four organs? Or are you going to give those four organs to four different people, somebody who needs a, a liver, somebody who needs a heart, and two people who need a lung each? And so that, that, that creates an ethical quandary. And in the, in the end, after a year, of deliberating all this, we elected to do this triple organ transplantation. At the time, there had only been about single digits done in the entire world. 
And months after it was accomplished, and I, I called the patient that night and brought him in. Uh, he gave the valedictory speech at his high school. Um, I took him to football games, uh, NFL football games together. We had incredible experiences. And uh, ultimately, he um, ended up actually uh, dying of, of, a, of a cancer, of a post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder several years later, but lived a, a wonderful, beautiful, and very powerful and meaningful life during the years after his triple organ transplantation. All right, um, Angie, same question. What one story really kind of sticks with you, especially from an ethics perspective? The story that sticks out to me the most, and I think that this is just not only from a, an ethical perspective, but also from a clinical perspective, is a patient that I had uh, about a year ago who, um, this was a very small baby who developed, who was born with biliary atresia and also had some other issues. And she got very sick very quickly in the hospital and ended up having to be admitted to the ICU with liver failure. And we, we were pretty worried that this child was too small and too fragile to undergo a transplant, but we decided to take a risk and list her for transplantation, hoping that we could find a donor that would be of adequate size. She was actually so small that um, an adult living donor segment was too big for her. And uh, ultimately she ended up getting a, uh, a liver transplant, a partial liver transplant from a pediatric donor. And uh, while she had a, a prolonged hospital course, ultimately went home um, just a few months ago and is thriving. And I think one of, there, there were many ethical issues that came up, but one was what is too sick to transplant? And what are the differences when it comes to pediatric transplantation? Do you push do you push the envelope with, uh, you know, a small child as opposed to an adult maybe at the other spectrum of life? And the second was on the donor side of things. Just from a personal standpoint, you have to wait for a pediatric donor. That's that's you've got a family who's in a devastating situ situation who um, who makes the decision to save another patient's life. When I think about the various ethical issues that arise in organ donation, I mean, there's so many to talk about, way more than we could go over in one single episode. But one that really jumps out to me as a central thesis or idea, if you will, is the dead donor rule. Carol, I wonder if you could talk about that. Just what is the dead donor rule? When we are taking an organ from a newly dead person, we have to frankly make sure that that person is actually dead because what we wouldn't do is kill a person in order to use the organ to someone else's uh, benefit. So the dead donor rule basically says you have to be sure that the patient who is, whose organ is going to be used is actually dead before the organ is taken. So that means you also can't do anything that, in fact, uh, assures the person's death um, in the process of donation. And I think some of those issues are um, swirl around donation after cardiac death more than uh, donation in the, in the more traditional way after brain death. But it means that we need to be able to ascertain that a person is dead 
before we will use an organ from that person. Basically, what I'm hearing you say, it's that old rule that you shouldn't kill one person to help another one. Right. Exactly. Call me old fashioned, but I think that's a pretty good rule. Yep. (laughs) Angie, do you have any other thoughts or comments on that? Or do you have a different way of thinking about it or framing it? So for me, I agree. The dead donor rule is very simple. It, as the, as a transplant surgeon, one of the first things I do when I get to a donor hospital is that I go over all the paperwork of the donor with, uh, with the team that's there. And I, I read through the, uh, determination of death if it if it's a brain dead donor make sure that they did it uh, in, that they used uh, an adequate um, way of determining if the patient is dead so that they actually did a reflex exam and apnea test if there were any additional studies like a cerebral brain flow study I check through all of that because I don't want to I don't want to break the dead donor rule. I don't want to operate on somebody who's alive and and cause and cause their death. And so for for transplant surgeons, it is a very bright line in the sand that we don't perform deceased donor operations on patients who are alive. All right, thank you. And since both of you did mention brain death, I want to make a note for our listeners that we realize there are a lot of ethical questions and concerns about brain death especially that have come up over the past few years, we are not going to address those in this episode. We'll have an entire episode dedicated to defining death and ethical issues around that. So we're going to take that whole big bucket, which is admittedly large, and we're going to set that aside for the rest of this discussion today. What does the consent process for donation look like? Um, And I'm thinking specifically here of cadaveric donation, not living donor. So the the process of donation is that when a when you have a patient who meets particular criteria, either they have a very bad traumatic brain injury or um, the, the family has decided to withhold or withdraw life-sustaining treatments, or you have any other, any other reason to believe that this patient um, might be either progressing toward brain death or uh, progressing toward, um, toward uh, cardiac death, then you then you call the organ procurement organization, which is the group of people or the company that uh, that takes care of all the logistics of organ donors from the time from the consent for donation all the way through the donation process themselves. And what happens at that point is that you tell them, I have this person who may be a potential donor. They then come to the hospital, do an evaluation of the donor, talk determine if the donor has first-person consent. So that's the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act ha- uh, states that first-person consent can uh, is acceptable for organ for deceased donor um, organ donation. So if a if a person has first-person consent either on their driver's license or through a donor registry, then they then the approach to the family is a little bit different than if they don't have consent. But what happens is that the specialist from the organ procurement organization who talks with families will actually sit down and have a family meeting and either say, this, this person said on their driver's license that they would want to be an organ donor. Is that something that, that you believe they wanted? And then there, there is a confirmation of consent at that point. If they didn't, then they ask, would this person, would your loved one want to be a family member? And if, if they say yes, would want to be a donor, if they say yes, then they go through a consent that just basically says 
the name of every organ and then they can consent for research for, for tissue, et cetera. So they can, do, they can do a blanket consent of donating everything or they can do a very specific consent, like just want to donate liver or kidneys. Angie, you mentioned first-person consent. Carol, I wonder if you could just tell me what that is. What is first-person consent? First person is I, it's me. It's me saying I want to be an organ donor and then putting a little dot on my driver's license or um, registering with a state um, authority. When I say I want to be an organ donor, the, as Dr. Wall said, the approach is somewhat different. And I would say the bar is higher for a family member to say no, um, since what we want to do is honor the um, wishes of the deceased patient. Angie, when you were talking about the consent process, you really made a sharp distinction between the organ procurement team and the team that's caring for the patient. And I know that's a, that's a really important distinction to make, that those roles are very strictly separated. Um, could you, and you've, I know you've already talked about this a little bit, but tell me a little bit about why that is, why that's important, and what does that look like, practically speaking? That keeps you from having a conflict of interest between trying to make the patient a, you know, an acceptable donor and trying to, trying to care for the patient as a person. If a patient um, is progressing toward brain death and the, the team that's taking care of them thinks that, that this patient is now brain dead, so they've lost all of their reflexes, they're not over-breathing the vent, they're not moving, then the, then the team will talk to the family and say, we think that your loved one is brain dead. Brain death is death. And the way that we determine if a person is brain dead is by these particular tests and assessments. If the patient is brain dead, then that person is now dead, even though they are still hooked up to a ventilator, still on, still on the heart is still beating and so forth. At that point, if the family has made the decision that this person is going to be a donor, or if the uh, if there was first person consent that is verified, then the organ procurement organization actually takes over the management of the brain dead individual, and what they do is they will they will do any sort of imaging tests that are necessary for organ evaluation. They will manage the the donor in a way that uh, that tries to best preserve the organs over the time period where they're working toward determining what organs are going to be donated and figuring out who the recipients are going to be. Beckett, could I just add how important language is um, for clinicians and ethics committee members in these conversations? Once a patient has been declared dead dead period, whether it's by brain criteria or otherwise, technically that that body is no longer a patient. It's a corpse. Its next move is burial, unless there's organ donation in between. So one of the things we really want to avoid is talking about removing life support from a dead patient. So we can remove a ventilator, artificial, you know, mechanical ventilation, um, but we shouldn't shorthand it to life support. It is not life support. It's supporting the, um, the functions, the organs being perfused with blood and oxygenated, 
of essentially a cadaver, and that, that's language we wouldn't use with a family who has recently lost a patient, but we really have to be careful not to confuse people um, because there, there's too much about a patient who is dead who is on a ventilator. They're pink, they're warm, their chest is rising and falling, and they look pretty alive. So we, we have to be really careful um, to make a distinction between life support which is not possible for a dead patient uh, because they're not alive anymore, um, and mechanical ventilation or uh, perfusion of organs. I've heard all of you talk about this general framework of two different sets of obligations. There's one group who's concerned about and caring for the donor or potential donor, and there's another group who's concerned about and caring for the potential recipient. And sometimes these obligations conflict with each other and you do a whole lot of work to try and make sure those conflicts don't affect the care of either one. One area that that conflict really comes to a head is the issue of the use of heparin in donation after circulatory death. Can you talk about what that issue looks like? Why is that a potential conflict of interest? And, and maybe what's done to mitigate that conflict? Heparin is, uh, it's a blood thinning drug that is used in all of our, all of our organ donor cases. In brain dead donors, we give heparin prior to what we call a cross clamp or right before we put cannulas into the patient and get ready to flush all the organs. In donation after circulatory determination of death, you don't have the luxury of that of that time because everything is everything is more hurried uh, and the time is more compressed. And so, in those cases, what we do is we give heparin prior to uh, the withdrawal of the ventilator. And what that does is it allows for the heparin to circulate before before you stop the interventions that are ultimately that will ultimately allow for this patient to die if they're going to die so it's really important from an organ preservation and organ quality perspective to give to give heparin while there's still circulating blood volume so that it goes to all the organs the issue is that the dose of heparin that we give is very high and so there is a risk that you could call, cause some sort of bleed that could hasten the, the death of the patient, um, specifically the risk of, of having a stroke. And so that's why, that's why there, is, um, there, there have been questions about if we, should, if we should be giving heparin to these patients prior to uh, the withdrawal of, life, of life-sustaining measures. What uh, organ procurement organizations do is that they they talk to the family about the use of heparin. They tell them that this is specifically for the uh, for the preservation of the or the quality of the organs, and they have a separate consent form that's signed. All right, thank you. So, is a common maybe have limits on the amount of heparin that can be used? Oh, there's a standard dose for adults. So we give thirty thousand units of heparin. It's a it's basically a standard dose for pretty much any donor. Okay. And Angie, is that a survivable dose um, if the patient were not going to die? Yeah. I mean, if you gave that much heparin to somebody, it would, it would be survivable in the sense that you could reverse it. Um, 
we often give high doses of heparin in in patients who we put on like a cardiac bypass machine or who um, who are having a vascular surgery. So it's not it's not like a crazy high dose, but it definitely if if I was giving this to like a, another patient, I would I would probably I would have to reverse it after doing whatever procedure I was doing. The thing that we would be concerned about, um, and that's why I asked the question about reversibility or survivability, um, going back all the way back to the beginning about the dead donor rule. We, we don't want to be doing something to the patient that actually makes them an organ donor, uh, meaning that, that uh, pushes them over the edge by what we're doing to sort of ensure their death, uh, which is certainly not why we do it, but we want to make sure that that's not what we're doing. There's one other thing that I think is an important distinction in donation after cardiac death donors uh, from, a, from a recipient standpoint. It's that when, when I evaluate a donation after cardiac death donor, I don't I, I typically don't ask for any studies or interventions to be done on that donor that are that are invasive, whereas I might do that with a brain dead donor because in in the setting of a donation after circulatory death donor, those individuals are still alive, and you don't want to be pushing for uh, for studies and interventions to be done to them that are not that are not in the interest of the patient that are just specifically for organ donation. That's so, a real point of not using a patient as a means to another's end. That's a really good point. So fewer scans, fewer tests to maybe determine and assess the quality of the organs? Exactly. So one of the things that I do is if I have, for example, if I have a question about the quality of, of a liver in a brain dead donor, I will often ask for a pre-recovery biopsy, which is just a bedside procedure with a, with a biopsy needle that goes into the liver. But in the case of donation after circulatory determination of death, I will not ask for a biopsy. If I really feel strongly about needing one, I'll do it in the operating room after I've, after I've started the, the operation. So it sounds like y'all go to um, quite uh, some lengths to make sure that you're treating the donor as a human being as opposed to, as Carol said, a means to an end. Yes, it is incredibly important for, uh, for transplantation in general and for the transplant teams who are involved in the operative part of donation after uh, circulatory determination of death, if it comes to that, to not be involved in the uh, pre, pre-death management of, um, of the patient. So we've talked about consent for the donor's perspective with the family. What does that process look like for the recipient? What, what happens in informed consent for the recipient? In the case of liver transplantation, I spend a lot more time with the patients talking about the procedure itself, talking about the the usual potential risks, the benefits of liver transplantation, but then I spend a lot of time on the post-operative course. I tell them that they're going to come out with a breathing tube in, that they'll be in the ICU, that they may have drains, that they'll have a lot of tubes and lines. And then I talk about different complications that can happen, the ones that I think are, you know, the most common. If they have an infection, they might need antibiotics. If they have bleeding, they might have to go back to the operating room. If their transplant fails early for some reason or another, they will get relisted for another transplant if they're not too sick. And they won't know it, but their family will know that they're, that they're in the ICU sick waiting for another organ. Um, they, might, they might have a bile leak or a stricture and require additional interventions. And when I talk about all of this, I talk about it because I want them to be on board 
with all the things that might happen to them after the transplant. And when it and if something bad happens or if they have if they have some sort of a complication, I can say, you know, we talked about that you could you could have had a you could have a problem with your bile duct. Well, I think that there is a problem with your bile duct. And this is a procedure I had already talked with you about, and this is what we recommend going forward with. And if you prepare patients up front, then it tends to be easier to have those conversations as, you know, as complications come up. A lot of patients have complications after liver transplantation. Some of them are not, are not a big deal. They're infections and so forth that are very easily treatable, but others can be, uh, can be life-threatening. So I, I think it's important to have those conversations up front. And then the other thing that I do is I always ask them if they're unable, if this patient, if you're unable to make decisions, who is going to make decisions for you? And it's usually somebody in the room with them anyway, but at least then I know who, who I'm going to be talking to if I, if I need someone else as an alternative decision maker. A lot of that really isn't necessarily unique to organ donation. That's just kind of good end of life practice or good practice for anybody who's critically or severely ill. I completely agree. I think the, the, one thing about organ donation or about organ transplantation that I try to get across to patients, and this is something that I brought up earlier, is that part of my job is to make sure that they do well and that the organ does well. And so if, if we go into this, op, this big operation together, I expect that they're going to do their job to try to get better and that they're that they're going to take the they're going to they're going to take the complications and work with me and let us do whatever additional interventions we need to do to try to get them through through the um, post operative course. This is not I, I would say that this does this is not the approach of other uh, in other situations necessarily. So uh, an alternative example would be somebody with really bad uh, vascular disease who undergoes a big open aortic procedure. And then they have a bunch of complications afterward, a heart attack, a stroke, um, lower extremity ischemia, bowel ischemia, something like that. When you get to the point of having really bad complications after a procedure like that, and let's say the patient already had multiple comorbid conditions, then it makes much more sense to start talking about, do we need to pull back, stop offering additional interventions, maybe transition to, to comfort care? Because we tried this procedure, we thought we could make it work, but we had complications that are making this not, that are, that are making the patients sicker. Could you give us kind of a closing comment from each of you? I think organ donation and organ transplantation are um, two of the areas where we have done some of our best ethical thinking, both about uh, justice um, and also about informed consent. And in some ways, they can be a, a standard for us in terms of deciding when to stop uh, with an individual patient, in terms of making clear what is going to be the um, outcome as far as we know it, also in being being clear that we're not perfect and that sometimes we make uh, judgments that aren't absolutely accurate because we're human and we can only know what we know. Um, I also think it's a place where we've done some of our best thinking, as I said earlier, about how to be fair with a resource that is limited. Personhood is so important in all of this, and we can't lose sight of the beauty of the human life 
and the tragedy of the loss of human life. And I'll never forget one particular Christmas. I was on call and there was a, a pizza delivery person trying to get underneath a certain time delivery. The person ran across a, a train track and got hit by a train and was pronounced dead via brain death criteria. And I had to do the bronchoscopy. The, um, the patient's lungs were absolutely beautiful, pristine, no problems. My partner was taking care of the cystic fibrosis patient who was going to receive the lungs. She had been waiting for a long time, was almost dead, hemoptysizing in the hospital. And so I pronounced my patient uh, dead by brain death criteria. It was very clear that they had no spontaneous respirations. They had no cortical cerebellar or brainstem function at all after the wait period was confirmed. Uh, the cystic fibrosis patient carried for by another physician um, re received those lungs in the operating room. And it was just such a juxtaposition of death and life. And I think that we can't ever lose sight of the magnitude of this circumstance and uh, never make a business out of it and always just keep ourselves firmly grounded in the beauty of human life, the respect for human death, and, um, and, and all sides that are present there with the grieving of the family, uh, the elation of the recipient family, and, and all that happening at one time. And if we do that, we'll have better respect, we're less likely to abuse rules and, and situations, and, um, and keep ourselves grounded in what is actually going on in the world of organ transplantation. Um, Angie, how about you? I am a huge advocate of organ donation as a transplant surgeon, obviously, and we want every patient to do well, but if there are patients who are progressing to death and they have, they have expressed the desire to be a donor or their family expresses the desire to be, the, to be a donor, then we want to make every effort possible to make that donation happen and to make it successful. I'd like to thank Dr. Bailey, Dr. Wall, and Dr. Ely for being with us today to talk about ethical issues in organ donation. Things that jumped out to me as takeaway points from our discussion was that there are two kinds of organ donation. There is donation after brain death and donation after cardiac death, and each one raises unique ethical issues. The second is that there is a conflicting set of obligations between the team caring for the potential donor and the team caring for the potential recipient. Both teams go to great lengths to avoid conflicts of interest that arise when caring for their patients. Appreciation to our guests and listeners on this episode of the Ethics Lab Essentials podcast. Thanks, everyone. you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.